No mai haere mai, my name is Jeremy and this is the Maximum Institute Podcast. Over the past few weeks, a lot of the conversations I've been a part of have included questions like, what do you think about the vaccine? Do you reckon you'll get it straight away? Doesn't it seem like it's come out way too quickly? During the COVID-19 pandemic, New Zealand's focus was on lockdown, elimination and border control. Updates around the development of a vaccine seemed like international news. Scientists overseas working hard to develop and test a vaccine for a disease that was a health threat for people who were being infected in other countries. The need for a vaccine didn't seem as pressing in New Zealand, where we'd largely managed to keep the virus at bay. However, February and March's Level 3 and 2 changes reminded us that our elimination strategy is tenuous and costly. The need for a vaccine rollout is now firmly in our local news and a pressing domestic priority. Our guest for this month's podcast is Professor Graham Legro. He's an immunologist who is the Program Director for the Vaccine Alliance of Aotearoa New Zealand, and he's also the Director of the Maligan Institute of Medical Research, a charity that has a long history in vaccine development, with a focus on immunology and immunotherapies. I sat down with Graham over Zoom to talk all things vaccine. How long does it actually take to make a new one? How long should it take? What's different about this RNA vaccine from ones that we've known before? And should we make it mandatory? I found that Graham's answers were informative, surprising, and sometimes controversial. I hope you'll enjoy the conversation. So, Graham, one of the big questions that I've had, uh, you know, in, in, in talking about the vaccine, and is that it seems to have happened really quickly. We, we, we were sort of at the beginning of this told that a vaccine was probably no closer than two years away. And then, you know, it seemed possibly with sort of eight to 10 months that the first vaccines were sort of said to be viable um, after testing. Was this really quick or is it just that we don't know much about the way that vaccines are normally sort of produced and, and how long they take? Uh, research and development is actually more than almost two decades old as far as RNA vaccines are concerned. Could you so, just explain what an RNA vaccine is and, and what makes uh, that different? Uh, this is a new technology where we use actually the bit that comes after a gene, the message from the gene to make the protein. And so you take the RNA, which is that messenger, and you can actually make it as part of a vaccine. And it goes inside our own cells and it just makes one part of the virus the part we want to make an immune response to, and then stimulates great immunity. And we've now realised that this has worked very well and has ended up being quite safe. Right, and so I guess going back to the original part of the question, you say this has been, people have been interested in developing an mRNA vaccine for a while. Actually, it's much older than people realise RNA vaccines. RNA vaccines have been really that were going to be the holy grail for, for treating cancer or new forms of cancer. So that's where a lot of the development money has gone in. And then up pops COVID-19, oh, a wholly new infectious organism. And what was powerful is that you can very quickly code into your RNA vaccine the code for one part of the virus that we need to make a neutralizing antibody response to. And so that's why within 60 days, a vaccine was made from the isolation and the genetic identification of the COVID-19 virus. So it was 60 days from, from when? Yes, from, from isolation of the virus, from someone going, <laughs> dying, uh, to actually, hey, this is the sequence of this virus and, 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 and getting something looking as though it could be, make a vaccine. So that's an incredible new technology that we've never had before, but which we knew we had the potential for. Now. What normally bedevils vaccine development and is actually trialling and testing through toxicity and safety and testing. And what happened with the COVID-19 is that the 
enormous amounts of money and resources could all of a sudden be put down on the table and we've seen several 60,000 person phase three clinical trials put underway. Normally, everyone's very adverse about committing that much money to long trials. So it seems to take a very long time because you've got to justify doing all these different things. So it hasn't been rushed in the sense that in terms of knowing about this way of vaccinating against the, the virus. It's just money has been made available so that large parallel clinical trials can be done right this year. So the predictions of sort of a two-year window for vaccines that were made at the beginning, I guess scientists might have been able to anticipate that there would be this amount of money being put forward uh, to to get a vaccine as soon as possible. Why, why did they not the, assume? The, the, there were some question marks around the ability to keep the... R One trouble with RNA is that it's inherently unstable. It degrades very quickly and becomes nothing. And so there are a couple of tricks that have recently been developed that most people were not aware of, which actually you encapsulate the RNA in these little fatty globules and it stays safe and it doesn't degrade and you store it at minus 70 or minus 20 degrees and it can stay safe and, and I won't say viable, but stays active as a vaccine for uh, forever in that frozen state. And so that's been a development. Right, and so that's to get it to the person. And yeah. then once it goes in, um, does it, I mean, you know, once it's not at night negative 70, but it's actually at body temperature, is it supposed to degrade from there or does it just do oh, different yes. things? No, well, it gets inside the cell because the lipid, little lipid um, envelope takes it inside the cell and then it's safe and it does what, a virus does or, or any other gene in our body does just ma starts making some copies for a limited period of time and then we and, and they get released in the body naturally and then our immune system kicks into gear because it can identify any foreign protein our immune system is exquisitely designed to say should everything be here is it normal is what i normally i've been born with and then it sees there's a bit of viral protein there and it immediately starts making a very strong immune response that can neutralise that protein. And by, and by association, it will neutralise any virus that has that protein on its surface. And that's why it neutralises the COVID-19 whole intact virus. Hmm. I guess one of the things that um, sort of comes up as a red flag for some people when they hear scientists say, well, you know, the that comes out of the lipid, the envelope, and it goes into your cell and it changes your cell. And they go, what? Um, yeah. You know, and so what, I mean, for you, obviously you're not concerned about that. And so why are you not concerned about that? And, and, and how is there no danger of this sort of, you know, I guess the sort of worst fears of genetically modified corn sort of becoming sentient and, you know, running amok amongst us? Well, first of all, the RNA is very safe. It doesn't actually genetically re recombine. It's much more dangerous to actually have a natural virus infection. Look at the herpes viruses and stuff, which actually integrate into your DNA. This thing cannot. It's just completely impossible for it to integrate in, in any way, change our genetic conformation. Whereas natural viral infections, a lot of them can actually go inside us, integrate into our DNA and live for the next 20, 30 years in, in, our, in our bodies, in, right. our, in our DNA. So uh, for me, this is a very uh, partial part of a natural viral immune response we're seeing with the common cold, with, her with the herpes viruses, the cold sores that everyone has. You know, it's, I think people are now coming to terms with the fact that what goes on in their bodies, and that's, it all seems yucky at the beginning, but once you get used to it, it's fine. One of the other things is obviously, you know, uh, 
they've, these vaccines have gone through clinical trials, like you said, the 60,000 person trials, and that's trials for three months, right? Yes. Yeah. And so I guess one of the things that people would say is, well, yeah, that's cool. So it just tells us that it's safe at least for three months. But how do we know that, you know, decades to come, we're, we're not going to find out that there's, you know, a, a side effect that doesn't appear until a few years after you get it? We don't know that. We don't know that. So there is some risk. The only comfort we have is the fact that with other viruses, very similar in a way, and the way our immune system works, we know an awful lot, and it won't go off the rails. It'll have to, it's not an unusual virus. It's a very, should I say, normal kind of virus that learns how to infect people in, in the way it does. It's not one of those things like HIV virus or the ones which integrate and stay with us a long time. So it's unlikely to go off the rails um, for that reason because of the ex really extensive knowledge we have with the way the immune system actually works. And, but there's no guarantees in life. We actually don't know. And it could be possible that for certain population groups, it, the, this vaccine will not fit and it will actually do something that could bugger them up for something later on. There is no guarantee that that will not happen. Right. And so I guess, you know, if you're talking to someone who says, look, you know, I'm not, I'm not at great risk for long tail COVID or for COVID that has really, really bad symptoms, I would just rather take the risk of getting a, you know, a low, low symptom form of COVID um, than get a vaccine that I'm putting into my body that, you know, we don't know what could happen. Yeah, that's their right, and I'm not a philosopher. I'm not being a philosopher here, or anything like that. That's a political decision, but the only thing that those people may do is they may spread it to their grandparents or people who are more vulnerable to the virus. The good thing about having a vaccine is it means that not only are you protected, but you stop the transmission. But you're correct. If you're a low risk person, um, you could argue that you don't need to, and you may as well have. If it was just the common cold. The trouble is you don't really know whether you're going to be a, a person that does badly or well. Even as a young person, there's always this small number of people who are actually at risk of some more major disease, even as a young person. And we don't know how to type those people. But honestly, I'd say in five years' time, we'll know the young people who are at risk of having a severe reaction to natural COVID-19 infection and we would recommend that they get vaccinated. And it may be that it comes down to the fact we don't have to have vaccination of people who are at very low risk. And this is a standard procedure for a lot of medical treatments, actually. You know, you do no harm right. and don't do the thing that which is riskier person. That's the thing that dominates all thinking around any kind of medicine or vaccine. Now, what you said before was really interesting to me because there's been a lot of conversation and I... I I've been having these conversations with people who aren't sure about what's going on. And there's real uncertainty about whether or not this vaccine just prevents your body from having the worst level of reaction to COVID or whether it actually prevents you from even getting the virus and, and then also passing it on. Some people do say that, that you'll see a few examples coming through now. They've had the vaccine and lo and behold, all of a sudden they become virus positive. And in other words, they're transmitting the virus. However, it takes up to 30, 30 days or 30 to 40 days before your immune system goes through all the processes to make you fully immune against a virus. So if you have a large dose of mucus from someone with full of virus, you're quite susceptible still, even in the first few weeks of having the vaccine. So we're going to see those cases coming through. 
Right, so the way that the vaccines are designed are that once you have had both shots and you're fully vaccinated, Mm -hmm. that you can't even get the virus or pass it on to anyone. That's the way it seems. Now, of course, there'll be some poor people who don't actually have a good immune system. And I tell you, we all vary. You probably have a very strong immune system. You're young and, you know, go out to the gym and all this stuff. And I've got, <laughs> and I've got an old, weak immune system. And I, my, my vaccine response may not be quite as good. And I can see, foresee down the track, as we learn more about the virus and what's effective immunity, we might have to have doses that are tailor-made towards older people or younger people. Right, okay. And, and so when people are actually getting the vaccine, what side effects are actually normal? Because obviously the, the, the whole point of the vaccine is to kind of imitate the, the look and feel of the actual virus to your immune system. So your immune system learns how to fight against it, right? That's correct. If you have a completely non-reactive kind of vaccine, you won't get much of an immune response and you won't be very immune for very long. You've got to go through a little bit of pain for it to be good for you, so to speak. Um, this, particularly the Pfizer vaccine, which we're talking about here, um, the RNA actually triggers a kind of a thing called an, an innate immune response. And the first time you get it, you'll feel a bit sort of lousy. But the second time you get it, you'll feel good and proper and made a f- bit of a headache. Um, uh, most people feel a bit really lousy for about six hours or for a day, and then it's gone. And um, I'm afraid that's just part of really kicking in the right kind of immune response for this particular virus. And, uh, but it's certainly a hell of a lot better than actually getting the, nat- the natural virus, which will make you sick and have a headache for the whole week and make you cough up all sorts of muck for weeks after. So you've got to look at that. So you just referred to the Pfizer vaccine there. Uh, in, in your opinion, does it actually matter which of these vaccines you get? Each of the vaccines that we're, New Zealand has purchased and which are available around the world all have different properties that actually have advantages and disadvantages depending on, on the circumstance. So there's some vaccines which are very stable in tropical conditions and they last quite well in the normal old fridge. Um, but at the moment, they are a bit clumsy to make in some ways, harder to manufacture and may not stimulate as great an immunity. Now, the RNA vaccines seem to be really good they're a little bit expensive, and you actually ha- and they can't you can't manufacture them as quickly. We don't have the vaccine manufacturing plants that can make lots of RNA vaccines, so there's not as much available. So if you've got the damn pandemic coming around, everyone's dying of the virus, you still want to get your AstraZeneca vaccine because it's actually you know available as such. Um, but other properties that you talked about is the immune properties. Some vaccines have to be given twice. Some vaccines only have to be given once. And that's got some real advantage when you're trying to roll out a vaccine. Some vaccines um, bring in other kinds of immune responses, which may or may not be good. And we're going to see that with time because we don't know what is the basis of the long-lived immunity against this virus. So it's kind of good that we have, you know, it's a big, big global experiment in a way. And I'm sorry we're all doing it. Wouldn't it be nice if we just knew in 10 years' time what's the best vaccine? But we're just going to have to just go through this painful process of putting several vaccines out there in the community around the world and actually measuring things after one year, two year, five years, and then we'll say, which is the best vaccine? Now, the good thing about that is we'll be doing the big experiment that needs to be, the big clinical trial that needs to be done that for the future of the world, the future nine billion people, they'll know which is the right vaccine to have. Right. 
So in terms of the RNA vaccine, are we expecting that to be different to sort of your regular flu vaccine where as the flu mutates and sort of we get a different seasonal flu each year, are we expecting there to be a different seasonal COVID, you know, COVID-20, COVID-21? From my perspective, from my knowledge, no, I don't think so. The flu virus is uniquely designed to just change little bits and pieces. It's, it's, it's This particular virus, the COVID-19, is quite different. It's just a sloppy mutator. It's very lazy and sloppy with the way it reproduces itself. And so mutations aren't as quite as conscious. It's rather random. So I don't... I think it's also the COVID virus, unlike the flu, has got um, very limited capability about how much it can change about itself so we'll find a few mutations appearing and then that's it and there will just be a virus that we can actually make a good vaccine to now it doesn't mean to say it can't go off and live in other animal species like go back to vats and then change again so i think what we've learned is that we've got to be really prepared next time with a vaccine that can react quickly to whatever is thrown at us in five years time when it comes to actually selling this sort of rollout of a vaccine across an entire population, there's obviously some complexities to the messaging. How do you think we need to be narrating sort of the the rollout of this vaccine to prevent moral hazard around people going, well, I've got the first one, so I can just go around and behave, you know, as I want, um, and, it, and it doesn't really matter? Um, wow. That's a big question because it means knowing the diversity of people. You know, we're, div- we're quite diverse as far as our immune system is concerned, but then let's just talk about people's attitudes to various things, and we have an enormous diversity there and how you communicate to the living, heaving uh, beast of, a, of, of the body politic. I just uh, That's a big question. I think that we have to speak honestly and truthfully, and I think we've got a unique situation in, in the global world now, in the New Zealand world now, where... Media is very much engaged with the messaging and communicating with various authorities. And you see what's happening is uh, people are held to account so quickly and so precisely, which is a good thing, that I think that um, as results come through, the media jump on it. And like we're hearing this pressure on the AstraZeneca vaccine at the moment. And, and scientists are made to discuss, is this a real fear? Should we be concerned? Should the government change policy? And government thinks about that. So I think making sure we have a virtual circle around the various groups of people involved in rolling out the vaccine so there's transparency and people learn to trust the messaging that they're getting will be the way forward. I think it would be wrong to just say, get your vaccine and it'll be okay and, and, don't, and, and don't cause trouble. That is the wrong message because we have yet to learn just how the, the vaccines may not work quite as well and we need to change the message. So I think we have to rely on a basis of trust that with the best of knowledge we have at the time, this is the vaccine should have and this is the expected outcomes. And we keep on that very clear message. Now, what it does mean is that the general population do have to become immunologists, do have to become a bit of vaccine scientists because they have to understand the messages. And that's where the media are very important because you've got to bridge this often very detailed sort of almost uh, pedantic scientific side with the languages that uh, and the words that people understand in the general population. For me, as a scientist, and just seeing how I've got to use my words and what I can and can't say, and like I'm very careful not to give philosophical or political opinion and try and stick to the science, because you can see that people blur all those things and everyone has a job. The politicians have a job for talking about 
They understand the general population, what the general population cares about. Media understands what the general population cares about. I know about the virus and your body's immune system. Do you have a sense of how we can try to avoid uh, a politicization of a public health response to something which is just generally, um, A, not that much of an impediment to your daily life as wearing a mask for most people, uh, and B, something that can really actually help? I think it's a very important question. How can we avoid the distractions of certain scientific statements becoming a basis for politicization? And I think that two things need to happen, or three things need to happen. I think the media have to become vaccine science savvy. I think scientists need to become politically savvy and understand how they've got to, can't just rant on in their own little prejudices. And I think politicians have to get very good at reading the tea leaves around these things. Um, there's always potential for, for politicization. Um, as we've done before, we used to call the Chinese virus, as being the Hong Kong flu, the Spanish flu. I think we need to think very carefully that, and scientists need to be very careful with how much ammunition they give to those very powerful political forces to make things political. Because at the end of the day, we need to get rid of the virus and get our global world functioning at some level, because it's clearly not right now, and it won't survive in, its, in any form unless we can start to have the free flow of goods and people. I guess, you know, digging into that, what would be the danger of actually just sitting back? I mean, leave aside the economic kind of side of it. What would be the danger of sitting back and waiting for more results? Obviously, things are happening around the AstraZeneca um, rollout, um, and it would be great to hear you talk a little bit more about that. Um, but, you know, for New Zealand, we're in this rarefied position of, of not having a great danger. Um, why shouldn't we just sort of sit back and wait for other countries to figure out which ones are best and then, and then take advantage of that? It would be very dangerous, and the influenza is a perfect example. Viruses like nothing better than to have a completely naive population. And if we stay disengaged from either vaccine-induced immunity or natural immunity from the virus, the virus is always evolving, evolving, and it's becoming either more powerful, more infectious, more dangerous. And so when it does slip in, and viruses will always slip in, I work with these viruses, you can't keep them out for long. We've done very well for a few months or for a year, but it will get in then your completely naive population is decimated, just like all the North American Indians, the people in South America, the people in the islands. They were devastated by influenza and measles because they just had never seen it as a population grouping before, and there was no broad population immunity. So it's very dangerous to be completely naive to a global pathogen. Right. So just to tease out your answer from before around um, I, when I asked you about, you know, will this virus, is this like virus likely to be like the flu where there's a different seasonal version of it? And you said that this is a sort of a lazy virus that doesn't, uh, you know, that, that, that doesn't mutate or doesn't have as much capacity to mutate. It seems like your answer from before somewhat contradicts what you just said. So I just would love you to just sort of tease out what the danger of this virus mutating is compared to what you said before. Yeah, the influenza is actually evolutionary. It's, it's found a way to very precisely, be, it, it, it really understands the human host and it's forever changing a very precise bits and pieces um, of, its, of, its, of its componentry because it's in this constant immunological arms race. The COVID-19 doesn't quite have that genetic engineering where it's really focused around 
mutating precisely bits to, to keep it ahead of the immune system. And so I call it a lazy virus. It hasn't got really strong genetic uh, systems for forcing mutations and evolution. However, just through the process of a slower process of random natural selection, it will actually eventually find mutations that can live in the more, more dangerously or you know be more effective in the general population. Right. So that the longer it's left to just sort of sit in its own devices, yeah. Yeah. accidentally yeah. it'll just come up with with exactly. Different... I suppose you're talking about the time frame, and I was thinking if New Zealand stayed isolated from the rest of the world for ten years, and the virus is just growing elsewhere, it would be dangerous. That's what I mean. Just going back to um, the AstraZeneca, uh, what, what's come out? Maybe if, if you could just sort of give us a, a brief overview of what's sort of been discovered about, you know, the AstraZeneca side effects and and how concerned you would be about that um, and, and how you think New Zealand should respond in our vaccine rollout because of what's being discovered. The AstraZeneca has been rolled out in quite a large number of people. And you've got to remember, you have 100,000 or 500,000 people and someone gets the vaccine and they walk out the door and they have a heart attack and die. Is it because of the vaccine or is that out of 500,000 people at any one time on the planet, five or 10 people are gonna have a heart attack and die? The particular cases that are being talked about right now, some blood clotting issues and stuff, they may just be the chance event you have when you, you, know, when you have such a large number of people. But because of the very precautionary nature, because we don't know everything about these vaccines, things get stopped and say, just, just look at the data, make sure we're not making something worse. So it's because the scientists and the clinicians and the nurses doing these trials, they're walking a little bit on eggshells at the moment and just nervous about rolling out something that could be quite dangerous. So it has not proven to be. I don't think it will be. I think that once they investigate, they'll find the AstraZeneca is fine. It's, it's, it's a standard procedure. We know a lot about the virus. There's a J&J &J version. There's a good vaccine. It's, it's, it'll be unlikely unless there's a batch problem, and that can happen, and that could be the reason why it wasn't made very well or something like that. And then when they make it properly, it works well. Are there any conditions under which you would refuse to take a vaccine? Uh, well, that's a good question, I suppose. Uh, any conditions? That, well, of course, um, if it doesn't work, say I've got, got no immune system, I'm on cancer drugs, and my, you know, there wouldn't be much value. It'd be just wasting money and wasting people's time and put me and actually yeah so that will be the worst conditions when my immune system is not really strong and healthy and that that's that's really not a good thing to do now moving somewhat from the science to uh the philosophical side of the argument there's been a lot of discussion around kind of uh you know i, I remember a few months back there was news items talking about hey well you know when we get a vaccine the first people that should get it are the young people because they're the most mobile they're the most social and most at risk of actually spreading this around um and sort of super spreader events how should we be sort of prioritizing who gets it first and and why so I think this does come down to a little bit of personal philosophy. So I'll just say, this is my personal philosophy, and I think we should give it to the people most at risk of disease. I think it's going to be very hard to protect those people by doing this general herd immunisation and going through all the communications, because I think it's going to take some time. So I think we should roll it out, border control workers, people who could potentially expose to the virus, and people who actually would not do very well, the at-risk groups over 60 years old and, and people like that. I think that's who we should do first for here in New Zealand, and I think that's the best way to safeguard and prevent death because that's what we're about. 
Um, if you try and do it like a herd immunity thing and we've got to vaccinate the young people, it, it just gets so tricky because um, there's a whole lot of social communication issues you've got to go through there. And I think that would actually put it for a longer period of time, people who are really vulnerable at risk. Where do you think the cutoff is around people who are, you know, who have these lowered immune systems and are particularly vulnerable to the virus. Um, obviously in Norway, when the vaccine, I think the Pfizer vaccine was first being rolled out, you had a bunch of terminally ill patients um, die. Uh, where would you say is the cutoff between, you know, hey, they're vulnerable, give them the virus, and hey, they're way too vulnerable, they can't even sustain the side effects of the virus? Yeah, I think that's a bit crazy. Um, people who are really at an end-of-life situation, it doesn't make much sense. You actually may tip them over the edge. You know, a bit of, bit of drama of the immune system is not what they need. Um, so I wouldn't, wouldn't recommend those people. And I think that um, you have to be sensible about just what you're trying to achieve. Um, this is a very important philosophical issue. Do you vaccinate people who've got dementia? Do you vaccinate people who have a, 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 a cancer they're going to die of in six months? These, these, are, these are tricky things, and we value, we value all life. And I think it's not for me as a scientist to decide. That's a political decision. It's a society decision, and they speak through their politicians for that stuff. So I think it's wrong for me as a scientist. I'll just try and make something that's work and safe in people. As, as someone who's invested a lot of time and expertise into developing and making sure that vaccines are safe, where do you stand on arguments around making some vaccines mandatory to create an effective health response? I don't really like that. I think that you know it becomes a can become a very bullying thing, and you're forcing things to do something that people don't want to do. I think that there's enough science and good knowledge out there that if people care about their loved ones, their children, or whatever, they would get and their their elderly, they would get vaccinated just for the good of the community. There's that philosophy. There's people who actually would probably would do very well to be protected from the natural infection. And if you make the right information available, what people, how people have done when they actually haven't had a vaccine or you know, had the natural infection, if they've actually seen the right movies, they'll see that I want a vaccine. And, and it's, it's true, we've got to really think a bit about it. You can really, if you've got a, a family and the, and the COVID-19 goes through, the way we understand it affects people, it actually will devastate a family for a good period of time as it works its way through your family. You don't want that any more than you want the flu to go through the family. It's not good for you. It doesn't make you live longer. How many people uh, need to get a vaccine in order for sort of herd immunity to be there? Um, and is herd immunity for COVID-19 even the thing that we're really going for? Is it just, you know, anyone who doesn't want COVID-19 should get the vaccine? Yeah, actually, this thing about herd immunity—it's a—it's people now understand it as a concept, but as a but but actually, how you build rules around it, herd immunity—the number, the magic number—depends of how people are living. If there's people just having uh, smoozing and going to rock concerts all the time, you need a ninety percent uh, level of herd immunity to stop the vaccine transmitted. But if people are wearing PPE and actually washing their hands and not kissing each other and stuff like that, you know. A vaccine that has 50% efficiency is more than adequate to really close down the virus and get rid of it from the community. So it really does depend on a little bit on how we behave and how we socialise things. Um, I think it's very dangerous to go heading towards a herd immunity thing because it actually just gets into a whole thing. We've got to get a certain number, but it won't actually protect the people who could be vulnerable because 
that not the priority. It's just a matter of getting as many people vaccinated. And the virus is so clever. It, it just will we'll, we'll, we'll find a way to be a little reservoir somewhere and it'll find the people who are vulnerable and it'll start growing and infect them and make them very sick. Well, I guess it's kind of like, you know, the measles, you know, we, we, we essentially have herd immunity to the measles, but it doesn't stop flare-ups every now and then for some reason. No, it doesn't. No, and you've got to be on your guard and keep it up tight. Do you think that in the future, so, you know, say I have children in the future um, who weren't around for this first vaccine rollout, do you think that they're going to have to get the vaccine in order for COVID-19 to sort of stay away? Uh, and also, how long do you think it will remain free? Eventually, for all the issues, because even though you've got a vaccine, you identified it, it has to be safety tested. The batches have to be safety tested. It cannot remain free forever. Someone has to be able to pay their costs of all those kinds of things. Of course, we're just starting the whole... I just got to make that quite clear. The vaccines that we have now are just the beginning. We're trying to work on vaccines. This is the... Mulligan Institute's Vaccine Alliance out here in New Zealand. We're trying to work on vaccines which will give long-lived, 10-year immunity. At the moment, we sort of figure that we're thinking that the vaccines have currently been rolled out will last maybe one or two years before they become susceptible again. We don't actually know, but that's that's the thinking. So we need to make new vaccines that really stimulate long, long-lived immunity. Now, going back to your children of the future, they will have they will end up having a vaccine. This. This, a vaccine against COVID-19 will become one of the vaccines that you have in childhood, along with, um, you know, measles, all those sorts of things. Because the virus has learned to live within the 9 billion people that are with us here. It, it, it will stay around. It's just, it's just the way viruses work. Could you just describe a little bit about the Vaccine Alliance and kind of your work and, and what that is about, like what you're attempting to do? The Vaccine Alliance Aotearoa New Zealand is, in a way, it's insurance for the country. When it started and when the government decided to set up, up, us up, they didn't know whether a vaccine could be made in two years or five years. They didn't know what type of vaccine could be made. We didn't know how the virus was going to be. We didn't know it was going to, you know, going to be 10% people dying or 5% people dying or no percent. So we're insurance. To, at least New Zealand has its own homegrown, because we do make vaccines here. And we do manufacture vaccines here. So we'll put up, set up to start preparing to make sure we have the right laboratory infrastructure, the right trained people, and the right systems for testing and make, actually making and developing our own New Zealand-made virus vaccine. Um, second part is to make sure we have a clinical, a clinical arm of our vaccine alliance, which is to really look and see the vaccines that are brought into New Zealand. How are they doing? What are they doing? And we're actually helping along. We're hoping to be able to see that with the Maori and Pacific, do they have the same level of immunogenicity induced or protective immunity induced by these standard vaccines? Or is there some differences, differences related to the, you know, many of the diseases associated uh, in some of the people, and, and so things like that. So we really are insurance just to check things out, make something so we've got reserve. Of course, we can't beat the billion dollar Moderna or Pfizer. However, if the world had shut down, we would be able to make a vaccine that would be able to go into people eventually with time. Now, one of the things that I've, I've wondered about is, you know, of course, we had that moment where, um, you know, a, a, I think about a couple of months back where Chris Hipkins was standing there in, in the Beehive uh, uh, media room and he was saying, look, the, the vaccine is here. We just need New Zealand's sort of, you know, vaccine approval body 
to meet and talk about whether or not we want to approve it for use in New Zealand. And a lot of people, including me, were like, well, hang on a minute. If it's good enough for Britain, if it's good enough for America, you know, what what makes us think that we'd find something different? I mean, who who's on that group and what were they looking for and, and why is it necessary? That group is charged with any medicine in New Zealand. It's called MedSafe, is to make sure that enough data is collected around any medicine given to New Zealanders passes a number of tests, tests around how well it's been manufactured and what kind of procedures they have for determining safety and toxicity and making sure all the reagents that go into the into say the vaccine or the medicine have been sourced correctly and there's no chance for something dirty to get in. They also look at has all the right data been done, can we put say a vaccine in children? Has there been enough data done for children or people who uh, women who are pregnant or old people or people on this drug or that drug. And so they actually make whoever's bringing the vaccine in or who's ever presenting, hey, I've got a vaccine or a medicine, have you put all your ducks in a row around data around all these different things? And they look at the data and they say, aha, uh -huh, you cannot put this medicine in children because you haven't shown yet that it actually doesn't hurt them or actually works. And that's the agency there. Now, they're independent a bit from government and they were set up that way to protect people from ruthless governments or ill-informed governments. Um, but the, they are, have got to have an expertise across the board. And that's where it's quite difficult because New Zealand's a small country and MedSafe have relied and do rely on having access to, to, to data that's been generated overseas and expertise that, that fits with the other regulatory agencies like FDA and TGA and, and, the, and the UK and the European one. When you, I mean, I'm sure you probably end up every now and then, uh, at hazards of the job, uh, end up in conversations with people who aren't necessarily, you know, completely anti-vaccinations, but are like, well, you know, I hear you say that there are, we don't actually know whether there are any long-term consequences to taking this particular vaccine. Um, yeah, I, and the way the virus, will, the virus of the future will interact with it. Yeah, and and obviously you, uh, given the the time and the uh, expertise that you've devoted to vaccinations that you clearly believe that they're usually a good thing. What do you say to people who are like, I'm just going to wait to see what this does in, in other people before I give it to myself or, or maybe give it to my children? Well, I, I think that I remind them that they've got the privilege that the virus is not being in, in, in our community right now, but it could happen. And then what are they going to do? Because they'll have a moral choice then that to stop the virus spreading through them to other people, they may be fine, but infecting other people, hurting other people, they could do an awful lot for their New Zealand community if they got vaccinated, because that actually would stop the transmission. That's number one. Number two, they do not know that they would not would do very well with the virus. To date, we cannot predict young people who are going to get very sick and potentially die from the natural virus infection middle-aged people or old people. We know in older people there are worse outcomes, but young people have died from this virus. Young people have had very serious and continue to have very serious debilitating lung conditions from this virus. And you talk about the long-term effects of the vaccine. No, I can't say that, I'll be honest. But tell me about the long-term effects of this virus infection. We have no clue. This virus infects all our blood vessels. It infects our brain. It changes our, our, our smell. So, would you rather have a vaccine, which we know an awful lot about what it can do and not do? Would you rather have a virus that infects your entire body and weakens the blood vessels, weakens the brain cells? I know what I would go for. 
Now, to all those people who have already been hazards of the job, had to discuss things with, and I tell you, I have had quite a few conversations about that. Um, very few people will admit they're actually an anti-vaxxer to me because that's just too ludicrous. But the cautionary table, it's all about the level of communication, the level of understanding they've got. And I think that as we do our job, as the media do their job and bring more informative kinds of uh, pieces so that people understand, people are taking control of this messaging and they are building confidence and they understand what's being developed here. It's very exciting. It's never happened before globally, this vaccine rollout, and we're learning as we go. Thanks for listening to the Maxim Institute podcast. You can search and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. To hear more from us and to keep up with the rest of our research and analysis of politics and policy in New Zealand, you can sign up on the homepage of our website to get our monthly forum email and invitations to future Maxim Institute events. From the team at Maxim, Matewa, goodbye for now. <laughs>